Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Teresa Nanya, VP of Global Customer Success and Renewals at Zendesk. In this episode, we talked about effective ways to measure the impact of customer success, how Zendesk runs experimentation programs within their customer success team, and Teresa also explains why time to value is their go-to metric. We then discussed the role of a practice manager and their function within the team, how customer success and sales work together in upsells and renewals, and how Zendesk makes sure to mitigate customer frustrations when being juggled between the two. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Teresa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Teresa is the VP of Global Customer Success and Renewals at Zendesk. And Zendesk makes customer service better. They build software to meet customer needs, set your team up for success, and keep your business in sync. Prior to Zendesk, Teresa was the CEO of Al Gore that was acquired by Autodesk, and she then went on to become a Senior Director of Customer Success at Autodesk. Also, I just want to say a very big thanks to David Sakamoto, who has had a recommendation for Teresa today and made an introduction. So thanks a lot, David. My first question for you, though, Teresa, is what is your definition of customer success? I know there's a lot of different definitions out there. What do you see as the role of customer success and what impact should they be having within the organization? Yeah, that's a really loaded question, but the way I look at it is pretty simple. I think customer success is all about driving value for customers, making sure that the solutions that they're contemplating in your company are those that best fit their needs. Once that sale transaction has occurred, really in the front line, responsible for ensuring that customer achieves all that they expect out of that solution And capturing that, being able to measure that's our life's work, but definitely driving that ability for first time to value, getting a quick implementation and deployment, but then also just really maturing their understanding of the solution and really, again, achieving that business goal. That to me is what customer success is all about. Yeah. So like extremely simply puts is like basically making sure the customer receives value from the tool. But like you said, it was a fully loaded question and you mentioned a lot of things and there's a couple of things I want to touch on. So the first one was actually, like you mentioned, the measurement being the life's work of customer success and being able to measure the impact that you're having as a team and how uh, you can increase engagement. So in your experience, like what has been effective ways of actually being able to measure the impact that your team is having for your customers? 
Yeah, that is a very important topic because I think we as CS leaders really need to be able to articulate the impact we're having on the business. And sometimes that's more challenging than you might think. I think the ultimate outcome, the lagging indicator is, let's say, retention rate, churn contraction, attrition budget. Many times those metrics are used. Obviously, net revenue retention, net dollar retention is another great metric, but that's all lagging. That's all going to happen after you've done all the important work proactively. So what I like to do is blend that outcome, that business goal and result with actually looking at more leading indicators. So one of the things that I've uh, modeled out is our impact on first time to value. So really taking that onboarding period very specifically, what is the engagement we're driving to get that customer fast time to value? And then when you look at that engaged group compared to, let's say, those we don't engage with, or you can even suppress a group and have a control group, the point is you should be seeing an uplift in faster time to value with that engagement from CS. Similarly, in the adoption journey, you could do the same thing by just taking a look at How are they maturing along that maturity curve, really getting the full value unlocked of your solutions? And what is that engagement from CS, that outcome-driven engagement, contributing to that ability to mature that customer along that adoption journey? And if you can demonstrate that those engaged are having a bigger impact, maybe they're using more capabilities in the solution, maybe that group is um, using more products in a suite collection, let's say, then you could start to correlate that the work CS is doing is driving that critical uh, moment of truth, which is getting the customer to really unlock the full capabilities of your solution. So looking at those correlation Metrics has been pretty, you know, that's something that's really impressive at the board table, at the C-suite table, because it shows that we're doing leading indicator review as well as that final outcome. Yeah. And I think obviously it makes so much sense in the context of trend retention. We chatted about it just before the show that it is a really lagging metric and there's so many different inputs. It also, it sounds really interesting, like from the perspective of the way you position as well, like suppressing a group, it's almost like running an experimentation program within CS, just like you would within products to try and improve retention or to try and move specific metrics. How have you typically gone in the past of setting something like this up as well? You mentioned you understand some engagement metrics. You want to shorten the time to value. You want to make sure that customers are getting there. What would a typical setup look like this for you to test something to see what works to actually validate it before then like going ahead and say, okay, this works? Yeah, you're right. Because it is like A-B testing. And it's also important to remember that we are dealing with real customers that actually need our help. So I don't really enjoy having too many uh, suppressed customers in a control group just to prove internally that, you know, that we're having an impact. So we take a very, I'll say, pragmatic approach. First of all, we look at our unengaged group. And if that is generally able to be a fairly unbiased cohort, we're not going to suppress that many more. So we're really looking at what is the, what are the attributes of the unengaged group? Maybe they just opted out because they didn't want digital content, or maybe they didn't want phone calls. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily not going to eventually be leveraging the full capabilities of the solution. So I think there's creative ways. Data scientists are starting to learn more pragmatically 
how to do this without creating like a true double blind study, but still having, look, we're not here to cure some sort of disease and have no error, you know, threshold. We recognize that there is some bias and the study is meant to really be directional and not necessarily like scientific. So when I could show an uplift of eight points though, over an unengaged cohort, Chances are, even if there's a four point bias, it's, yeah. it's telling you a story. And then you can always dollarize some of that impact as well. And again, I found that to be pretty impactful when you're dealing with business leaders that do, I do hold a number. I can tell you that is one sure way to be able to demonstrate value is to hold the number. So I hold the book of business. I'm responsible for churning contraction. We have variable comp for all of our people in my organization. So that outcome is absolutely the most critical part, but I still think trying to convince our C-suite that earlier engagement, proactive engagement, getting that onboarding fast time to value, getting customers to adopt and realize the value really makes that final renewal event a non-event. So really showing them that impact with the leading indicators has been why I feel like you have to look at it holistically. Yeah. And I as well, because that was the the initial question was like thinking, okay, you have a suppressed group, you're deliberately not giving them a good service to try and think. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But uh, also, you made a very good point, I think, in the sense that it's like, uh, we're not dealing with uh, life or death situations as well, when you're trying to make these improvements to make these things, because you could definitely like argue on the other side that the group uh, that didn't go through the contacts, they might have been a specific type of user, a specific persona, and you've just created a bias in the data there. But ultimately, like you say, when you're seeing like a big uplift, like eight points, uh, that almost gives you some indication of significance in its own right, even though there's bias in, in your data. Uh, and you're just trying to like uh, make an improvement overall for better service for your customers. Exactly. Why specifically time uh, to value as well? What's been your experience working uh, with time to value? Yeah, I will say I am not a big subscriber to heavy data science that indicates like how much correlation is there between time to value and ultimate renewal. Because I do think, to your point, so many other things can happen in that customer journey. Even if you don't have a great like first 30 days, it is definitely possible to turn that account around through intervention and just other ways to add value. But I still believe that in that first 30 days, you're really building that first impression with the customer. So one of our biggest like differentiators with our Zendesk solution, really against the competitive um, landscape, is that we do offer great fast time to value. You can get 80% of the capabilities and functionality of a great CX experience in literally like weeks, not months. So we want to measure that. So we're really looking at after 30 days, how many of our agents that were secured in the model are actually provisioned and starting to use in the first 45 days? Like, how is the implementation gone? Maybe they were self-serve and did it themselves. Maybe we help them with our professional services. So really looking at those metrics and determining when is the right time for CS to be engaged? We definitely have a welcome kickoff for sure, letting the customer know, and this isn't all customers, of course, because there's scale where it's maybe digital only. We have a long tail, 170,000 customers, but many of our customers that spend a certain amount and have a good potential for growth are getting that first touch, that onboard welcome. And then really the data and the insights help determine from there on out when we need to engage next. 
so that we're really using a bit of dynamic segmentation to only reach the right customers at the right time, even during that onboarding period, because maybe everything is going great. And then we can really start getting them accustomed to some of the capabilities they may not have unlocked. Yeah. And then figuring out what's next for the customers as opposed to giving like a standard solution for everyone. Exactly. It sounds, and actually I'm one of the 176, I think, oh, thousand. I just recently set up Zendesk for, for my new startup as well. And like you say, it was literally within a week. I had a really great setup from help desk to support and to getting system. Uh, really fantastic experience. Obviously not at the level we would have uh, hands-on customer success, but still the, the tool itself, I think. Been a well, after this interview, years. I'll make sure you get a little bit of white glove treatment as well. Okay. <laughs> Nice. Nice. The thing I was interested as well, as you mentioned like data science a few times, it sounds like you're working quite closely with the data team then uh, from a customer success perspective. What is that relationship? Do you have somebody that's working directly with you? Are you trying to secure resources? How do you deal with that? I've seen it so many ways, like embedded in the CS organization where they can really be immersed in the actual practice and then centralized and being able to benefit from that center of excellence. I love at Zendesk that we have a bit of a blend, which I think is the best. It's hybrid. I have one person on my team, not a data scientist, but clearly the person that understands the requirements that we have from a data standpoint, the the key moments of truth that we are trying to basically engage with the customer. We call them killer issues, things that we know just from our human engagement are likely going to cause a customer to be frustrated and not on a healthy path. So that person immersed in my practice really speaks our language. And then we work in partnership with a great team of data scientists and analysts, uh, data curation people, so that we can really identify the best of both worlds and talk our language so we don't have to translate it into terms that data scientists understand, but also leverage from them a little bit more of the heuristic approaches to identifying which accounts are on a healthy track, which accounts are not versus always waiting for like that perfect predictive scoring. And this person that sits within your team, then like what would be their main day-to-day functions? Do they do any actual like data analysis themselves or it's really just being that bridge between? Yeah, it's really a bridge. It's like a product manager. If you think of it like that, I, I call them practice managers where they really, again, they understand our high touch method. They understand our medium touch. They understand our scaled approach. And each of those have some overlapping data requirements for sure. So the benefit is this data science team is not hearing from individual leaders in my organization. We have a very clear intake process and then prioritization because we all know that, again, you got to start with what you have. You can't wait for perfect data. So what I really value is being able to start scrappy. Let's learn even from our humans if this data that is being surfaced is helping them engage in a way that is having a good, effective outcome that gets that customer closer to full ROI versus waiting for perfect correlation and what are the drivers of that predictive score where sometimes it makes it too difficult to action on. So I think the individual, and actually I'm building out a team, a small team in my organization is more of a product manager to really liaison with the data science team. And I found that to be a really practical way to bridge the two. Yeah, I like that as well. And again, it's it's like 
taking a product-led approach uh, to customer success. Right. It sounds like you're running your own sort of experimentation. You have a, a PM type role within the team and like treating part of uh, your product as customer success or vice exactly. versa, which I love. It's actually like at Hotjar, I hit up. I used to hit up business intelligence there. And we also had a hybrid model of sorts when it came to data analysts and working with different teams, whereby we had the center of excellence, but then we would have embedded analysts working within different product squads and working within marketing. Uh, and the end goal was to have an analyst working with each team within the company or each squad, but having that center of excellence where they came to for the weekly standups, wow. uh, what's going on, like uh, code reviews and things like this that you would need typically need, but still being able to immerse yourself within that team, being able to like really understand the problem truly and deeply, be able to empathize with customers, even get on calls with them as well. It definitely pays off. Yes. The next thing I wanted to touch on then as well is your role uh, as global customer success and renewals. Yeah. So this is something as well, like on the show, obviously, when we think about uh, net negative churn and like increasing retention is really like upsells and renewals, like being a big path. And typically as well, like the, the two are separated when mm -hmm. I speak to like different organizations. In some cases, they do the same, but I'd say 80% of the time when I've spoken to people, it's typically that they try and separate the relationship between customer success and sales, mm -hmm. and they try to hand over. How do you handle this today yourself within your organization? Like what role does customer success obviously within renewals, but then at, when it comes to renewal time, like how heavy are they getting involved in upsells or cross sales? Yeah, I, I think this is such an important topic. And again, just because I've been at this for so long, I have seen it always and I really love the way we're doing it at Zendesk. We've evolved, first of all, starting with sales leadership to clarify roles and responsibilities. So sales is absolutely, and we have a very simple but important RACI to basically document this understanding. They are land and expand, and their expand motion is all about big expansion, new instances, new white space in accounts. We absolutely leave that completely to sales. Now, the exciting thing is that I have in my organization two profiles. I have our customer success leaders who are absolutely there, again, to drive that value, to understand the customer's needs intimately, why they bought our solution in the first place, and then ensuring that they're taking them on this journey of really getting not just the full value out of the product, but the full value from Zendesk. So all of the community experiences and the product roadmap input and all sorts of great touch points across the company. And then my renewals organization, totally different profile. These are more commercially minded folks. They are absolutely going to be very handed off at time of, let's say, 90 days, 180 days prior to the renewal. They're starting to build those relationships with their accounts in the procurement group making sure that we understand what are the T's and C's the customer is going to expect or what are the commercial licensing options that we might now have available to them. Like we now offer suites and certain licensing options to have flexibility, like a pooled option of agent needs. These are things I don't want my customer success leaders worrying about. So the beauty of it is there is excellent collaboration because they all sit within my organization. We share the same goals, so there is partnership there, but our, our customers can easily recognize that this is more of a commercial conversation versus in the success world, we're keeping it more to that trusted advisor. Now, that said, I just want to indicate, I fully believe that if you're doing a great job with that onboarding, that adoption, that ROI delivery, 
you're identifying expansion opportunities all through the life cycle of the customer. So again, one of the beautiful motions that we've implemented is let's not wait till the renewal date. Let's pull that contract forward and talk about when a customer has a need an expansion opportunity, and let's return that contract. So we call that pull forwards. And my CS organization hands that right over to their renewals counterpart. So again, different profiles. We don't wait for the renewal date. In fact, I look at it by the time of the renewal date, you're probably dealing with a little bit of an unhealthy customer, i.e. someone that hasn't needed any more from Zendesk in that entire contract period, which is unlikely. So that might be a conversation of flat or contracting matters. And again, that renewals team is well enabled to do swap plays and other things. So it might not be upsell, but it's swapping out maybe some needs for others to mitigate that churn. That's interesting as well. And then, so this is one of the things I think I've always found has never been a great experience. It's like this handoff. And it sounds like you definitely have this concept of passing the baton on from person to person and then passing, juggling like the customer around. How are, is the team like mitigating the effort? Because I've, what I've always found as well as a buyer is typically like the salesperson who first talked to you. So why did you right. sign up today? What are your goals? And then you would tell them the goals and then customer success would come in and say, okay, Ask uh, the same questions. tell me what are your goals? What are you trying yeah. to achieve? And then yeah. we get handed over to uh, the renewals manager again and the same sort of uh, process. Yep. So like, what are you doing at Zendesk differently to avoid this? It is an absolute great question because you are so right. We even as consumers, we hate that, right? When we're dealing with different departments and they don't have that, great holistic view of the customer. So look, we don't have it perfect yet, but I can tell you we are focusing on the customer 360. We leverage Zendesk technology for this. We are using other workflow tools like Gainsight. And then of course we have our CRM in the background as well. So I think having the critical data about the customer surfaced, the insights about that customer surfaced for those key customer facing roles you can assure a much better handoff because all of the previous conversations, the critical insights, not just data, but insights about whether the customer is like tracking healthy, whether they've been tracking unhealthy, this really helps, especially in that handoff to the renewals team. And frankly, even working in partnership with sales because they can see everything that we're driving and then we can see the engagements they're having. You mentioned another great important handoff, and that is even at the very beginning when the customer first decides on your solution and their expectations and what really inspired them to secure your solution, we try to capture that at least for our top customers in the customer success plan, which we start building even before the customer makes that purchase decision. So I think one of the greatest partnerships we have with sales is for our largest accounts even at the prospect stage, success is brought in. Why? Not only because we want to hear from the customer those same things you mentioned, but also we are then able to share with that customer all the services that they're going to get post-purchase. This makes them feel just a lot more, okay, I know my salesperson role. I know my customer success manager role. I've been introduced to them. So that is, to me, a great best practice. Now, we all know you can't do that with every customer. Again, talking about that long tail. So yep. we try to have the sales rep indicate the critical elements about that purchase at time of purchase so that we can carry that into in a more automated fashion, the, what I'll call the 
automated customer success plan, which may not have all that tailored approach for our larger ones. Yeah, interesting. And obviously, like you say, it's definitely a work in progress all the time trying to figure out the best. You mentioned yes. something in the, the beginning as well, like uh, the RACI matrix. So like having a responsible accountable consultant and informed matrix that was put together. And you would you you did this in collaboration with sales initially. Okay. I'm interested, like what that process looked like in the beginning? What were some of the like discussions that happened what was maybe some of the more contentious points where people say okay no this is our responsibility this should be success responsibility how did that go down yeah you're right it it took many meetings and i still feel like ongoing enablement is always needed i do think we we started with the layer model land adopt expand renew and we just at least started with okay who's responsible for land and expand let's put sales primarily in that function and then adopt and renew was primarily my organization and then is the devils in the details so we we didn't yeah. go crazy we just broke down some of the key moments of truth with customers. Who owns the account plan? That plan is a little bit broader. It talks more internally about some of the expansion activities that we might be driving in that account. So we have that like in the sales group. Yeah. But then the success plan, instead of it being a separate artifact, we talked about how it is part of the account plan. So again, those are some of the friction points where it was like, wait, we don't want to have redundant like stakeholder maps. We don't want to have collision on the strategy for the account. So we tuck them together so that they're cascading and therefore a joint artifact. Other tension points would be like escalation. So if a customer is having any escalations, typically it would have been the CS person in the lead, but sometimes it makes sense for sales to do like on the commercials or something where they're just even questioning some of their initial purchase. So things like that, we worked through, we just basically indicate, okay, for the friction points, who's in the lead and then who's in support. One final area of tension would be at time of renewal or even earlier, what if an account is high growth potential and therefore expansion is going to be really in the hands of the sales rep? How do you start segmenting and determining who is on point for that renewal? So what we've decided to do is all through the customer life cycle, we identify with insights about those killer issues that I mentioned. Yeah. How is the customer tracking, healthy or unhealthy? We have a few variants of that. And if not tracking really well, we're putting that renewal in the hands of the renewal team. If we see high growth potential and tracking very healthy, then we put that renewal opportunity in the lead of the sales department. And we can always change it as we get closer to that moment of truth so that we know who's in the lead. And conversation, of course, is critical for our largest customers to assure we have the right strategy there. But doing that on those friction points and just at least having a method, I think has helped a lot. And then we just continue to reinforce in, in the actual grassroots of doing the job every day. And iterate on it as well. So That's it's like you have a lead scoring model then as well for renewals in a sense, uh, yes. just like you'd have a lead scoring model for sales. To start yep. out who has the propensity to goes. you know expand or even renew flat and then who might look like they're going to contract. 
Yeah. That's nice. The other thing as well I'd be interested then is like throwing even, I think maybe just in the context of the customer base that you're serving for this, but it doesn't sound like it would be an issue. But in other organizations, sometimes marketing also comes into play where there's certain aspects, for example, like the life cycle emails that go out. In some cases, our customer success is responsible for this. Some cases, uh, marketing team is. How is this handled then at Zendesk? Is it like really high touch, low touch? And then does marketing come into the mix or is it really? Yeah. I mean, I think we're in, 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 in the nascent stages of leveraging our life cycle marketing across our entire book of business. I think we do a really good job of it in the long tail. Yeah. So yes, they exist in the marketing organization. And certainly we collaborate with them to identify like, how do we want that onboarding journey to look from a digital self-serve standpoint? Because I frankly believe that digital self-serve experience, especially for products like ours, where we expect them to be fast time to value and easy to implement, digital self-serve can solve a lot of the things that you wouldn't want to put humans on. So what we haven't done yet, and is part of my roadmap, is orchestrate the the digital touch, and that could be email, that could be in-product out of the lifecycle marketing group with how my team is engaging or not. So being able to see the data, like what did they receive? What is the content that they got? And how have they engaged with that? Have they never opened it up? Did they follow the call to action? If not, and the customer looks like they're off track, that is definitely one we want to prioritize for human engagement. But if the customer has engaged with that content and is tracking well, again, back to that dynamic segmentation, that probably isn't the best place to put your human time. So I think it's a critical element. I've done it both ways. I've had it immersed in the customer success organization. There's some real goodness there. Back at Autodesk, we did that. Here at Zendesk, we we have different orgs, but we work very collaboratively. Yeah. And you mentioned another one as well, then product, like in product. So I think it just uh, keeps on piling up uh, when you start to think about responsibilities and the lines are always blurred, but it definitely sounds like you've got an interesting setup at Zendesk and moving in a good direction as well. So I want to save time as well for a question that I ask every guest uh, that joins the show. Let's uh, imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company Channel retention is not doing great at this company at all. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Teresa, we have three months. We really need to turn things around. Uh, We have limited time. You're in charge. You need to make an impact. But you're not going to do the typical thing of just go out and speak to customers and try and understand the problems. You need to just go off your guts, pick something that's worked for you in the past to reduce churn and run with it. What would be the one key initiative that you would want to introduce at this company? First, I would first just look at data to determine where is this churn happening? So let's just assume it's in the enterprise. Like I do think the high touch methods of getting the customer some of that fast time to value swarming at the front can be helpful. But what I would do first is start, frankly, near the renewal time. So swarming that last 90, last 180 days. I know it may seem like you have a low runway um, and it's true, it, 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 that is the case, but you can do a lot. We developed this save play where we actually swarm some of our largest accounts with, we identified they weren't satisfied with some of the product capabilities. We created solution even with PS, what we could do. And frankly, we might have to do it at no charge. 
We called that trace. It was basically like a code blue. Think of it like the medical analogy. How do you just bring the right people into the surgery room and basically save the customer? This is something that I think has made a big difference. And then you could start focusing earlier on and ensuring that even new customers are getting onboarded and adopting. So moving backwards on that life cycle. Does that make sense? Yep, because I think specifically the time frame is short. So this is definitely like a high impact is going to happen focusing towards the end of the life cycle. And typically something that you're going to see from the onboarding perspective is going to be like a longer term horizon where you're going to feel the impact. Exactly, exactly. Although there might be a lot more impact. Right, but that swarming has to involve all the key players. That's like bringing in all the top surgeons that need to perform the operation. Like we had to have our top technical architect our professional services at the table, our head product roadmap, the manager. So really just swarming that account with identifying the key areas where we could show impact quickly, I think would be one of the quickest ways to just start reducing that churn. And finding those accounts. Very nice. Last question then for today. What's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Mm, That's a great question. I would say the importance of working across the organization. I learned that over time. You cannot do this on your own. You need the support of your support and advocacy organization, your product organization, professional services. Even when you're under one umbrella, you typically have other goals, other metrics that you're trying to address. So that collaboration and recognizing the importance of the customer success organization just being that pinnacle of the spear, like making sure the customer doesn't have to navigate the different silos, but that you bring that all to the table and lean in and make sure that they are part of that solutioning for the customer to unlock that greatest ROI. That's something that I think it's hard, but it what it's really what makes our, I think, our roles so unique and valuable to an organization is who else brings everyone to the table with a customer at the center. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like the key as well when it comes to general retention is really having a really strong alignment. Like you're never really going to be able to make a significant impact without having the whole team's collaboration, everybody working towards that single goal and having the alignment of understanding, like putting the customer at the center, knowing what the main pain points, knowing what the main actions they need to take, get to value, like, having everybody working towards uh, that as a unit is really way more powerful than just like success, maybe off on its own or marketing or product or everybody trying to do their own little initiatives. So yeah, I think alignment for me is definitely. And it's hard. It is, but it's important. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Teresa, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of keeping up to speed with? No, I think if I had three things quickly to just remind everyone, like data is critical in driving a scaled CS operation, but don't wait for perfect data. I left Autodesk and I thought, wow, we had 30 years of like legacy data and now moving to a company that was born in the cloud, I thought everything would be perfect. Of course it isn't, but work with what you have and start somewhere. I think the second thing is just building those cross-org collaborative experiences and opportunities, like taking the lead on behalf of the customer. And I think third, developing some of those programmatic activities, like I mentioned, the swarming, looking at voice of customer, looking at the way that you might engage the community. Those are all things that are outside of the product, but so critical 
to um, helping ensure that customer gets the highest value. So those would be three things I'd leave you with. Awesome. Yeah. I love all three of those points. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, Great way to end the show. Great notes, final thoughts for the listeners. It's been a pleasure hosting you today and thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.